Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Room and Room podcasts. Great to have you join us. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a veterinarian and nutritionist based with the PGG Rights and Seeds team here in Lincoln in Canterbury. In this, the second part of a three-part series, we are going to be looking at all things to do with where am I missing milk solids as relates to what we call post-peak decline. Now that's the rate of drop-off peak milk solids production that our spring calving dairy cows experience here in New Zealand pasture-based systems. In the first part of Where Am I Missing Milk Solids, if you've tuned into that already, you'll remember that we covered where our missing milk solids from the point of when cows calve through to when they reach peak production. So if that part of the Where Am I Missing Milk Solids uh, is relevant to your business, jump back in and have a listen into that first podcast. Now for this podcast, the second one in the series, and also the third part of the series that will be published in about a week's time, we will be exploring post-peak decline and that rate of drop-off peak milk solids production. In this, the second one, we are going to be talking about things to do with the cows themselves that are risk factors for a greater than ideal rate of drop-off peak milk solids production. So very cow-based for this particular podcast. On the other hand, in the third part of the series, Where Am I Missing Milk Solids? We'll look at aspects around pasture quality that contribute to a faster than ideal drop-off peak milk solids production. So that'll look at things around grazing management, uh, how to improve pasture quality, how to, in the longer term, improve the composition of your pastures as influenced by ryegrass, but also companion species to improve the sward mix and aspects around different ryegrass cultivars available in the market that will improve post-peak decline. And then that third episode in the three-part series, we will step through the importance and role for summer forage cropping to also improve uh, the shape of your lactation curve through that sort of past the midpoint of lactation for your spring calf cows. But in the meantime, settle in whatever you may be doing, whether you're driving, you are on the tractor, you're doing the the kids run to, to school or from school, whatever you're doing, hope you enjoy this podcast. First up, we'll work through some of uh, the cow-based factors that contribute to post-peak decline, and then we'll move on to other things like pasture quality, uh, the fit for summer crops, for these sorts of things to see whether we can not flatten the curve because we can't stop a herd from dropping a little bit month on month uh, post-peak, but certainly looking for the main factors in predominantly pasture-fed cows uh, crashing out, if you'd like, during spring and then through into midsummer. So we'll kick off the first part of this post-peak decline podcast, I guess, by framing up about the topic of post-peak decline. Why do cows drop off peak? Why can't we have a flat lactation curve that just peaks and stays like that till the end of the season. How cool would that be? 
Ideal as that might sound, no matter how well we set our cows up and what we feed them and look after and avoid things like heat stress and all of those sorts of things, you know, actually it's uh, physiologically impossible to have a flat lactation curve. And because of that, we'll always see a gradual drop uh, or post-peak decline, even in a, let's say, a total mixed ration housed situation where we have full control over the diet, even in those situations we'll get a a post-peak decline. And because of that, we need to understand some of the factors that even best managed pasture-fed cows, we can only create an expectation uh, to slow the rate of uh, that decline but not stop it. So why on earth can't cows have a flat lactation curve? Well, good as that would be, sadly, no such luck due to a range of factors to do with the cow herself as she passes through her peak milk solids production. Uh, And these factors will stop her from having that flat curve right out uh, perhaps into May of the following year. So let's first explore what's happening with the cow, why Mother Nature has designed the cow to gradually drop away off peak production as her lactation progresses through into the autumn, and Just having a little bit of a look-see, is there anything that we can modify this with? Well, first to blame a drop-off peak, even if that's that gentle 2-3% to milk solids drop per month, we've got to blame the hormones. Yeah, (laughs) hormones, I guess, get blamed for a whole lot of other things, but we won't go there, right? Yeah, yeah, we won't pick on that one. Um, Seriously, though, look, the preparation of cows... To kick off lactation um, both before calving, you know, when the udder's filling up with colostrum, and after calving. Look, that whole process depends on a heap of very cleverly organised hormones that all kind of work together to prepare the cow to start producing milk. And once she's milking, uh, just that kind of array of hormones will then start to kick into overdrive just after the cow calves down. And that's designed to not only stimulate that production, but to make sure the cow continues to produce milk as she heads into peak production. Now, part of well, these hormones, there's lots of different ones, and we're not going to bore any, not going to bore me or you with going into a lot of detail. But in a holistic sense, the hormones work together to divert incoming nutrients, so that's the yummy feed that you put inside the cow that drop into the rumen and get turned into volatile fatty acids, into microbial protein, yada yada. And the hormones help the cow decide whether the majority of those incoming nutrients are going to fill the vat for you, or the other way around, in fact, uh, some of those or a lot of those nutrients, instead of going into the vat, are actually going to go on to back fat to help the cow hold condition or uh, the other way around to gain condition, particularly once the cow pass, uh, passes peak uh, milk production. Now, in early lactation, you'll know very well that pretty well all the cows in your herd will lose live weight or body condition score, whichever is your preferred measure. And no matter what we do to feed them, it's really hard to make a cow stay in the, exactly the same body condition that she carved down on. Now, that, I suppose, we'd consider it an insane drive to make milk 
and early lactation is obviously typically to the detriment of the condition score of the cow. And that's why we see all cows mobilise anywhere from perhaps half or even one uh, condition score on the New Zealand condition score scale that is um, on the scale of 1 to 10, not to be confused with the 1 to 8 or 1 to 5 condition scores used uh, internationally outside of New Zealand. As cows come off peat production, those really busy hormones are starting to calm down a notch or two so that that uh, insane drive to produce milk at the expense of uh, body condition starts to calm down. And what we see is that the what we call partitioning or drafting of which way those incoming nutrients are going to go, in other words, either all to the udder or all to the back fat, as cows uh, pass peak lactation, those drafting gate hormones that decide where the nutrients go are actually starting to partition or to draft more nutrients towards back fat and fewer nutrients towards the vat. So post-peak, that's where part of the reason that they won't start peak uh, 100% of the lactation. The drafting gate is starting to move more nutrients towards back fat once we hit mid-lactation, that drafting gate's kind of coming back to a midpoint again, drafting some nutrients to the left to the other, and increasingly drafting more and more nutrients to the right towards body condition gain. Hope that makes sense. We don't need to get into the complexity of all of the range of hormones that are responsible uh, for undertaking this drafting process. We're not going to talk about late lactation on this podcast, we'll, we'll record that closer to the autumn, but essentially the later and later we get into lactation, that hormonally controlled drafting gate is increasingly drafting to gain more conditions. So increasingly less and less of those nutrients, the drafting gate is, is um, tipping them towards the other. So there's our post-peak decline. Obviously, this is very much under hormonal control that we don't have a lot of control over, which is why no matter how well we manage our cows from a nutrition point of view, uh, we provide lots of shade, avoid heat stress, keep our feed quality really good. We can't actually battle good old mother nature who is rather insistent on drafting more nutrients towards condition gain as we head through mid to late lactation. Of course, mother nature is always right. And uh, we understand why a cow wants to draft more nutrients towards body condition. Clearly, this has been happening for way before cows got domesticated. And it's a way of ensuring that the cow is gaining weight sufficiently to allow her to cycle, to ovulate, to get in calf again. And with partitioning nutrients towards weight gain, she'll be in better shape for calving down again next season. So Mother Nature, we're not, we're not going to argue with this. But within your herd, and it's a genetic thing, even um, individual cow-based, some cows obviously have the drafting gate full on to the left, pouring nutrients into the udder and never seem to draft to the right. Uh, she might be your 650 or 750 kilo milk solid cow who fills the vat continuously. And that is obviously good genetic merit, but sometimes it's a challenge to get her to gain more condition. 
On the other hand, you've probably got some fatter cows in your herds, possibly they don't get to stay around quite as, as long, where by Christmas time they've actually gone rather fat and they're looking very pleased with themselves, but they haven't put a lot in the vat. So there's a lot of genetic variation, both um, between breeds and obviously within breeds and down to the individual cow level based on her genetic merit. One more thing while we're talking about the other, uh, the other basic reason that cows drop off peak aside from the hormonal drafting gait in action is because the milk secretory cells in the udder start to age, a bit like us I suppose, heading towards the end of calving and intermating, and those cells get rather tired as lactation progresses. So as we get off peak lactation, those secretory cells are less efficient at manufacturing uh, milk lactose uh, and milk protein fat. And that's another reason why we can't have a flat lactation curve. And that, of course, is the other reason why we have to have a dry period to ensure that secretory tissue in those cells can replenish themselves and that udder gets to have a break. We'll talk more about the drying off process and what that means for the udder probably closer to drying off for most of our New Zealand spring herd next year. So that's the first point, hormonal drafting gait and tired secretory cells in the udder. Point number two, now it's hormones again, bet you needed to hear that. It is actually the effects of pregnancy, or initially conception and then subsequent pregnancy, on our rate and extent of post-peak decline. So yeah, yet again the hormones. Well, you've probably all discussed and we've talked about it, that urban myth and legend, I guess, or is it an urban myth and legend, that does the rounds in late spring, early summer. Bet you've joined in on this conversation. And we say that, ooh, cows dropping milk production, you know, post-peak, it's all to do as they hold in calf, you know, as soon as we get to the first round of AI and, you know, our non-return rate could be uh, high 60s uh, or even low 70s percent non-return rate, looking good. Maybe that's where my missing milk solids have gone. So the question is, do cows drop off milk as they get to hold and calf? Well, actually, you'll be pleased to know there is some truth. And it's not all sort of urban myth and legend. It is, of course, the hormones. Now, it's not to do with increased energy or protein or nutrient demands in those very early few days post-conception because... When you think about it, it's just a tiny little dot of, of a cluster of cells, that little conceptus of the calf-to-be inside the uterus. And there's no way that those little dot um, conceptus cluster of cells will yet be taking up any energy or protein from the cow. So that in itself is not contributing to your post-peak decline. And in fact, uh, you know, another story another day, but when we are calculating the energy and protein demands of your cow, based on what the uterus needs, um, the placenta that's developed by then, you know, getting towards halfway through pregnancy, and of course the unborn calf, we don't actually add that into a cow's daily requirements for energy and protein and uh, calcium and whatnot until at least sort of that day 190 to 200 days of pregnancy. So if we look at the post-peak decline before Christmas, there's simply no way that it's an energy, protein, nutrient demand on the cow, just as they hold in calf. We laugh about hormones, but yep, we, we need to yet again uh, drop the blame around post-peak decline on conceiving cows based on uh, a shift in female hormones. It's all to do with the two key reproductive hormones that we're most interested in, which of course are oestrogen and progesterone. So if we pick those two out one by one, 
First up, estrogen. Now, that's the hormone that you'll be familiar with because it's produced by the ovarian follicle uh, in a cow that has not yet conceived. And in an empty cow, so she hasn't gone and calf or you've not mated her yet, obviously every 18 to 24 days as the cow cycles, assuming she's cycling after calving, those estrogen levels spike and then drop away and spike and then drop away. And obviously when she's full of estrogen, that's when she's going to be doing things like riding other cows and bulling and whatnot. Now, once a cow conceives and holds, I suppose is the term that you might use, what happens is that our estrogen levels don't drop away. So they stay elevated. Actually, while we're on that topic, elevated concentrations of estrogen in cows is why, what's one of the many reasons why bulling or in-heat cows um, come in with less milk, leaving estrogen behind. Then we have the second reproductive hormone, progesterone. Now, that hormone initially is produced by the lumpy structure that you can palpate on the ovary, and that's called the corpus luteum, or CL, you might have heard it called Now, once a cow conceives, that corpus luteum doesn't erode away and disappear like it does in a a non-pregnant cow, but that corpus luteum stays there and produces progesterone that obviously helps um, maintain that viable pregnancy. Now, when progesterone concentrations bounce up and stay up, that's associated uh, with reduced milk production. In terms of why, well... (laughs) It seems that the higher levels of progesterone, if we look at the theory of it, messes with the udder tissue's ability to make milk. So all of a sudden we have cows with higher levels of estrogen and higher levels of progesterone, and those two hormones help explain why cows that, as they hold in calf, start to drop milk, even though a little dot of cells inside the uterus has no meaningful energy demand yet. We all know that cows that are empty, you might prig test after Christmas and your empty cows are still producing on average more milk than your in-calf cows. It's to do with estrogen and progesterone. Pregnant cows not only have that to deal with, but they've also got changed blood levels of other hormones. I promise we won't go into too much detail on this, but um, progesterone is, is high, but also other things such as insulin and growth hormone that shunt blood glucose away from the other, there's that draft and go again, instead towards body condition gain and eventually, like later in pregnancy, towards the needs of the uterus and the placenta and, of course, the calf too. Third point in terms of what can mess with the rate and extent of post-peak decline is, of course, and you'll know this one too, is the age of the cow. What do you reckon, like, If we see individual cows in the herd crashing off peak milk solids production, which ones are going to crash harder, faster? You reckon your older cows or your young girls? You know, maybe your two and three-year-olds. Yeah, I'm sure you've said younger. Um, It's just a gut feel thing, eh? and I'm sure that you've seen it in the shed and and how how much milk cows are coming in with, particularly as we head closer to Christmas. Yeah, it's the younger girls. um, Totally agree with you. Look, in terms of why our heifers and sometimes our three-year-olds tend to drop off peak faster than than your mixed-age girls is probably because, of course, our young cows are often still doing quite a bit of growing. Now, this is particularly true if they've come in a little bit smaller than ideal. You know, things happen. Sometimes their first summer they don't grow and they might be a little bit behind on your on your target. 
live weights where they need to be. On average, even well-grown heifers will drop off peat slightly faster than your older cows. But uh, yeah, if they're particularly small, obviously your heifers will drop pretty quick um, post-peak. If we look at our first lactation cows compared to our big old girls, you know, those sort of, sort of right in their prime, I guess, you know, between their fourth and eighth lactation. Like these big girls... Um, are really quite different beasts with their post-peak decline. Like they tend to be holding their production better than the younger cows. If we look at the two-year-olds, what we're looking at is a range of things. One, as we said, they're still trying to grow. But as well, there's a couple of other challenges that our two-year-old girls have about producing well in their first lactation. And I guess the first things first is that these heifers tend to have, because it's been their first lactation of course, relatively lesser amounts of active secretory tissue in their udders compared to mixed age cows. So the development and extent of secretory tissue um, that's actively churning milk in their udders is higher or or is a greater proportion um, in older cows because they've been through multiple lactations. And these young cows coming off like their peak lactation they've got, I suppose, if you think of secretory cells as factory workers working away in the in the other factory, those young cows have fewer factory workers, uh, so to speak. So when we hit the challenges we're going to talk more about shortly, like the grass quality's falling away and it started to get a bit hot, and you know, it's no wonder that heifers are more likely to drop more quickly and extensively than older cows, because there's fewer factory workers, I suppose, carrying the load of lactation versus um, a fully staffed up factory in the udder of the older girls. But as well, there's other things about heifers, including things, particularly that hormonal drafting gait isn't hard to the left drafting everything to the udder. It's more likely letting more nutrients go to the right for gaining weight. And that drafting of more nutrients towards not only live weight gait and condition is more profound in younger animals. I'm sure you've seen your younger heifers, and in fact sometimes your three-year-olds, if they've come in a bit small as heifers the previous season, that they'll actually grow in height if they've come in a bit small. And you'll see that, you know, maybe before Christmas you're out in the paddock or looking across perhaps in the yard, you can go, you know, tall cow, tall cow, short cow, oops, heifer, tall cow, short cow, oops, heifer. Come on, we've all done this. And, um, and then when you get to sort of February, March for spring calf herd, then you're starting to say, oh, they've actually caught up. So it's no wonder that that height and condition from those younger cows growing in their first and sometimes second lactation is going to steal milk away from what otherwise those young cows would have put in the vat for you. I guess that's all the more reason to make sure that your heifers come in really well growing when they enter the herd, you know, maybe at 22 months, so that when they calve down, they're going to be better growing. So the drafting gate of sending nutrients either to growth and condition or to the udder will be more likely to send more nutrients to the udder. And because you're not having to grow their stature or for them to gain condition during that first lactation. And that's got to be better for reproductive outcomes too. And we will be doing a couple of podcasts about reproductive outcomes in cattle. The other thing about heifers coming in small is, of course, within the, I guess, the social hierarchical uh, structure or the pecking order of the herd. And you've all seen 
our big bossy old bitches um, that are up the top of the pecking order. They're bigger. Um, they know how to throw their weight around as well, bullying and picking on these younger, smaller cows. So in some farm management systems, it's often a risk that the heifers miss out when they have to compete quite assertively for feed. And if they're getting knocked around, bullied by the older cows, they'll probably not get the best pick of pasture. The older cows may keep them from accessing stock water, um, for example, and if thirsty heifers don't drink a lot, they're not going to eat a lot. Or in fact, when we hit the summer months of the year, those younger cows, you'll see them standing out in the sun while the, while the big old girls just soaking up the shade and having a lovely relaxing time. I guess it's another reason why I know that many of you will run your heifers all together, you know, perhaps once mating is finished, and maybe keeping them in a smaller mob with um, smaller, thinner, uh, mixed-age cows just to try and reduce this kind of social argy-bargy pushing and shoving uh, of our younger cows. So there are things that you can do. If we look at these the take-homes around these younger cows is that it's all about having better grown, well-set-up first-calving heifers entering the herd you know, in good shape so that they can actually um, be better set up to slow their post-peak decline. And, of course, if they're well grown, we'll be sending all the nutrients to the udder and not to back fat or taller at the wither height as we get through to after Christmas. And of course, the, the bigger well grown heifers, in terms of the pecking order, are more likely to compete well with those older cows. Now, so it's definitely about well grown heifers, and of course, we need to overlay the issue around body condition score of heifers needing to be at an ideal target of all heifers at 5.5 condition score or above on the 1 to 10 scale and we also need to set up strategies to prevent heifers from losing too much condition between calving and mating as of course our lighter condition heifers are more likely to crash off peak faster than heifers at better body uh, condition scores at peak lactation. We'll talk more about this shortly. So some of the strategies that you can look at might be for your heifers, um, not only calving them at a 5.5, but considering perhaps milking them once a day for a period of time. This is like your heifers or three-year-olds if they're looking a, a little bit beaten around. If you've got collars waiting till they're all um, ruminating really well, a good sign that they're competing well with our older cows and that they're not suffering from metabolic disease such as ketosis that heifers are prone to uh, suffer from in early lactation. And there's other things too, of course, like preferential feeding, give them the best paddocks versus the older cows. And it may be that you chuck out some uh, extra um, free choice feed in the paddock. Uh, a lot of you don't like palm kernel, but obviously palm kernel perhaps with grain in it, perhaps uh, molasses offering to those girls, as well as um, perhaps shorter walking distances for younger, lighter cows after calving. And there's obviously a lot of other strategies that I sh am sure that you're probably already using on your farm. So we touched briefly on condition score of heifers. So we're going to drill down into this point in more detail shortly. Now, we're going to move on to how post-peak decline can be influenced by cow body condition score at the point of peak lactation. And of course, just what condition score they're in at peak lactation is very much a function of firstly, how much condition they have on them when they calve, and then secondly, how much condition they lose from calving through to peak lactation. 
Now, if you think about it, and again, we look at what Mother Nature has cleverly designed when when, uh, cows were invented back in the day, if we end up with cows in very light body condition score at peak lactation, well, of course, Mother Nature's going to step in and protect the well-being of those cows because, obviously, Mother Nature wants the cows uh, to be gaining condition, to be able to be uh, mated, and then, of course, to be in good condition to produce a calf again next year. So if that means the cows are a bit on the light side on a condition score basis, any food that we put in front of the cows as pasture or other feeds will be diverted from, of course, milk towards life weight gain as a way of preserving the well-being of those cows. Now, essentially, that just simply means that the drafting gate that at peak uh, lactation and post-peak lactation period, the udder should still be receiving lots of nutrients so you can get a flatter curve. If the cows are a little bit too light, then Mother Nature's drafting gate, all hormonally driven, will push more nutrients towards weight gain and therefore these lighter cows will undergo a more extensive post-peak decline than cows in better condition score. So post-peak, this just means that there's less milk um, produced post-peak by lighter condition cows for every kilo of dry matter consumed, and this can certainly be a risk factor for a faster-than-ideal drop-off peak production And hopefully you are now doing some regular body condition score monitoring because when we're looking for where are your missing milk solids and why have you had a crash in post-peak decline, if we're not looking at this until perhaps the end of a season, it's incredibly valuable to have that condition score data. And then the other reason we might be looking at this after the event, like many months later, is if we are troubleshooting perhaps why reproductively the herd haven't done so well and clearly cows that are very light at mating depending on how much they're eating to compensate for the fact that they're light can be a risk factor for anestrum or non-cycling cows and potentially conception failure if they're particularly light but again big topic to be tackled another day and of course the main thing we have to acknowledge is that as an, an industry wow we've come a long way over the last 30 years or so about cow condition and oh my goodness our cows are in such better condition at peak and post-peak than they were 30 years ago. So I think as an industry we really need to be congratulated about understanding the importance of cow condition score for cow well-being. So we'd probably argue it's less likely that we'll see very thin cows contributing to rapid post-peak decline and it's full credit to to all of you guys out there in industry for being such good feeders of cows and on average cows being too light would be further down our list for trying to explain post-peak decline but if you're measuring and monitoring cow condition score we'd still look at that in order to take that off the list of potential causes of missing milk solids post-peak decline. Not sure if you're counting, but we're up to point number five about factors that contribute to inappropriately fast post-peak decline in milk solids production. Number five, what's another reason for that rapid crash or drop? Sticking still with the cow-based themes, what we can do is then look at some of the specific animal health challenges. Now, this clearly is not rocket science, it's pretty basic, but if we think about the, I suppose, the usual offenders um, in terms of the typical causes of animal health disorders that will 
rob you uh, of milk solids post-peak are, of course, mastitis. Now, a lot of work's been done by awesome researchers over the years, and there's rules of thumb about, you know, if your somatic cell count is higher than 250, then they'll produce, you know, a lot less milk. If you've had clinical cases, you know, that produces less milk. So what we're thinking, of course, here is that there's damage to those factory workers in the udder, the udder secretory cells, and either an acute uh, case of mastitis that you get on top of and, and cure very quickly, or just our, our chronic long-standing offenders, I suppose, the ones with high somatic cell counts, even though you're not seeing any clinical signs of mastitis, then clearly that will contribute to post-peak decline. So if you're a high somatic cell count herd, you really want to get on top of that because that will be contributing to fewer milk solids everywhere from post-carving peak, uh, post-peak decline and late lactation. So all four parts of the curve will suffer if you have a high somatic cell count herd. Lameness, of course, is another one. Uh, if cows are lame, they're uncomfortable, uh, they will reduce grazing time. And I'm sure those of you with collars um, or tag technology who monitor activity, rumination of lame cows, you've all seen the very dramatic effect uh, on cow well-being. So if we've got an unresolved lameness issue that's going on, clearly that's a, a major cause of post-peak decline. Similarly, as you're coming off peak, usually we're not seeing many cases of uh, metabolic disease, you know, like your, your bull and cows shouldn't still be going down with milk fever. If you are still getting the odd cow um, who's bulling that is going down post-peak um, with apparent milk fever, look, to be honest, you've probably got a subclinical unresolved issue still in play there. That will be uh, costing the cow's appetite and that drive to eat, and that in turn will contribute to post-peak decline. So they're the cow-based factors, you know, possibly not everything, but they're the main ones that we'd be looking at. Now we move into the environment within which that cow lives. And I guess the first thing we'll talk about for post-peak decline is the effects of heat stress for those cows that are being farmed in warmer regions of New Zealand. Now, during that post-peak period, we've got quite changeable weather, but on average, we're getting better, warmer weather, not only in terms of ambient temperature, but also humidity. Now, we're going to save uh, the whole discussion around heat stress for an entirely separate podcast, so we're not going to go into huge detail here, but just to acknowledge that heat stress certainly will contribute to post-peak decline of our spring calving cows, probably our autumn ones as well, to be fair, in warmer regions of New Zealand as we head towards late spring and early summer. More detail on another podcast, but we have what's called the thermoneutral zone. Thermoneutral zone, sometimes TMZ, which in the case of lactating cows, this defines the temperatures between which that cow is a very happy cow, and for cows, it's somewhere between 5 and 25 degrees Celsius, so thermoneutral zone. When a cow is happy and content between 5 and 25 degrees, all it means, because it's thermoneutral, and the, and the key word there is neutral, is that she's not having to use up any energy to either keep cool or to keep warm. And that's where that terminology of thermoneutral zone comes from. Clearly, once a cow starts to get too hot, she needs to start working harder 
to keep her body temperature within its normal range that I'm sure most of you all know, sort of, um, let's say, between 38.5 up to maybe 39.5. 39.5 is getting up there. And if she's too hot, the cow needs to start expending energy to keep herself cool. So her fixed maintenance costs to run her body and keep it well are higher when she's above her thermal neutral zone. But remember, the simplicity of thermal neutral zones only considers the ambient temperature around that cow, and it ignores other things that we need to take into account, such as the relative humidity. And humidity, as you know, is that term of how much moisture is in the air. And when we have high humidity, that makes a lower ambient temperature actually feel a lot hotter than it is. And I know we've all spent time in nice warm places, but with high humidity, and it can get quite unpleasant even if it's not that hot. As well, think of a black cow particularly, the amount of solar radiation from the sun and if the cow has access to shade. So you think about it, if you're out in a black t-shirt, on average, you'll get hotter than if you're out in a white t-shirt. Not that white's very practical for milking cows and the like. As well, the tolerance of cows to warmer or hotter ambient temperatures and higher humidity during the day is determined by how warm it is overnight. Because when a cow relaxes and does a lot of sitting down at night, she dissipates or gets rid of a lot of the heat that she's built up during the day. So if it's quite hot at night, she can't get rid of or dump that heat from during the day. So day on day on day, she gets hotter and hotter and hotter, particularly if we have hot conditions that go on for a a long time. As well, uh, if it's dead still without any breeze or anything, it's hotter for cows um, than if there's, there's quite a strong breeze blowing and that's simply to do with what we call evaporative cooling, a loss of heat from um, the lungs of the cow but we'll talk more about that in the podcast to come. Long story short, heat stress certainly makes it more unpleasant for a cow and when she's hot and bothered not only is she having to use energy to keep herself cool but of course when she's hot she doesn't want to eat as much feed as she could or should. Now, the dry matter intake can crash heaps, actually, by up to 10 to 20%, and that's a whole lot less feed eaten, particularly because she's got a, a greater requirement to waste energy to keep herself cool. So not unsurprisingly, if you are farming in a warmer region of New Zealand and uh, the temperature is higher, the humidity is high, not unsurprisingly, milk production will crash post-peak a lot harder than if you were farming in Otago or Southland. So essentially from November or so onwards, that increase in temperature and humidity combined will usually be reported as what we call the Temperature Humidity Index, or THI. And it's something good to monitor, and it's something we're going to have to be way, way more keen on looking out for and predicting when the cows are going to be affected by heat stress so that we can put into play a range of management strategies to reduce the effects uh, of heat on our cows. And that's going to be needed not only for promoting efficient milk production, but you know what? We've got to pay a whole lot more attention to this from an animal welfare point of view and keeping our cows comfortable and cool. But we'll definitely do a heat stress podcast. And in fact, we might invite one of my Australian contacts 
to actually run that for us because obviously on average Australians have to deal with heat stress in most parts of Australia a much greater extent than what we do in New Zealand. So we'll have a dedicated podcast, preferably with a guest speaker from Australia to help us work through some of the tips and tricks about managing that. Before we leave this point about heat stress and its impacts on our cows, now remembering it's not just our cows and us, of course, because we don't like it either, that get knocked around by heat and humidity, but also our pasture plants. And given our predominance of ryegrass, rightly or wrongly, in the hotter regions, um, this is the reason some some of you will be moving away from ryegrass in parts of New Zealand, is that ryegrass is what we call a temperate species, which means it likes, it's like it's got its own thermoneutral zone, it doesn't like being hot. When we get temperatures upwards of 25 degrees Celsius or so, and this is for the ryegrass, not for the cow, and again like the cow, the ryegrass also does not like these temperatures, and when we have high nighttime temperatures, again our ryegrasses, just like our cows, do not like high nighttime temperatures. And The way the ryegrass responds is potentially reduced dry matter production, so that can start to mess with your feed budget. But importantly, the quality of our ryegrasses can really crash and burn badly with the hot temperatures, particularly the hot overnight temperatures. Part of the quality um, that changes when ryegrasses get hot and bother is that the water-soluble carbohydrate levels crash out. Now whilst the plants are still photosynthesizing during the day and um, creating water-soluble carbs or sugars, which is good, if it's warm overnight, those plants will respire. They'll get rid of those sugars and convert them into water and carbon dioxide overnight when it's, it's nice and warm. So we can end up with really low sugar levels on some of our ryegrass pastures. And as well as that in the heat On average, our fibre, our NDF and ADF levels will increase compared to when it's cooler. And that combined with low levels of crude protein, harder for these animals to harvest these pastures. And it's no wonder that these hot and bothered ryegrasses also contribute to post-peak decline. So certainly hot ryegrasses are not necessarily suited for hot, humid conditions and climate change, the world's going a little bit mad with different weather patterns, we might have to revisit the suitability of ryegrasses to do well in these conditions and or we'll just continue to wait for our plant breeders to continue to make advances in this area of making ryegrasses, breeding ryegrasses that can tolerate, I suppose, the heat better than the ones that we've got around now. One other thing to finish up on the ryegrass, and we'll kind of come back to it in a minute, but uh, one other thing about the heat and humidity is when we get conditions like that, you'll probably see when you walk through your paddocks with ryegrass in it that you'll get a lot of rust over your boots. So your gumboots go in black and they come out orange. Now that's going to be one of a couple of types of what we call rust, a fungal infection, and hot-bothered Plants, particularly if they're nutrient-stressed but low on nitrogen, are more prone to getting rusty, and cows hate the taste of rust, so that can contribute to reduced dry matter intakes and cows that crash more spectacularly post-peak than if the the grasses don't have rust. So 
rust is an ongoing problem and when you are looking to do regrassing, make sure you've got good data about the ryegrass cultivars that you're planting to make sure they've got good tolerance to the different strains of rust round and about out there. Hey, well, that's another episode of the Room and Room podcasts done and dusted. And this one, we've covered the second part in our three-part series about post-peak milk decline, where are our missing milk solids, where we've covered some of the cow-based factors, as well as heat stress, as factors that can increase the extent and rate of post-peak uh, milk decline. Hopefully there's been something of interest for you in this podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any tips or tricks from the cow point of view or other aspects around how you have overcome uh, post-peak milk decline at your place. If you have got some stuff to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Come on over to the Room and Room Facebook group, add a post, add some comments to one of our existing posts, We'd really like to hear from you and I'm sure many of our more than 6,000 group members on the Facebook group, The Room and Room, would also like to hear from you too. It's one big community. Share what's worked for you. But in the meantime, hey, this has been Charlotte Westwood from PGG Rights and Seeds. Hope you have a wonderful day out and about, whatever you're up to. Hope you can join us for part three of our series around post-peak decline very, very soon. Enjoy your day. Cheers.